0: Let's turn to our text found in First Peter, chapter four. First Peter chapter four, and we're going to read from verse 17. We're not going to deal with the entire passage. We're going to read 17 to 19, but I'm going to dwell only on the first part of this text. First Peter chapter four, 17 to 19. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, Those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We thank you, Father. We bless you. We ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. May the meditation of our heart and the words that come from my lips be acceptable to you, O God, above all else. May the people of God be quickened by the word that we are meditating today. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Please be seated. Nazi Joseph Goebel once said these words, A lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. How true that is. There are many lies that have been embraced by society, that are now seen as true. One such lie is this, that there is no judgment, there is no hell, and there is no time when we will appear before a great white throne as a humanity. There is no such thing. That everyone will eventually end up in heaven And then, of course, there are those that don't believe that there's a hell at all. And then there are others who believe that everything ends with death. It's interesting how Peter begins this portion by saying it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, we've been looking at the theme of suffering for the past two weeks. And it's a very how would I say, a very unpopular topic, suffering, right? We've seen how the Christians of Asia Minor, these churches mentioned in the first chapter of Peter, were suffering for their faith. And we say to ourselves, okay, well, that's not our situation in Canada. Sure, there may be some ridicule, there may be some difficulty, but we're not suffering. We haven't been counted worthy to suffer as they suffer yet. That doesn't mean I'll never come. It doesn't mean that suffering and persecution will not come knocking at our door. It may come soon, it may come eventually, but it will come. Why? Because the Lord Jesus says that it will come. We will suffer persecution. And because he says that we will suffer persecution, it is best to be ready. Now some Christians believe that we should not even talk about persecution and suffering, much less about judgment. The reason they say this is because why would I talk to a child about cancer, for example? That's the last thing on his mind. Right? A child thinks about uh, play, thinks about toys, thinks about playing with his friends and going to school. These are the topics we talk about with our children. But why talk about such a, a morbid subject? Better not. So, in the same way, since we're not going through persecution in the Western world, why? deal with the subject. Why talk about it? Because the Lord Jesus speaks about it repeatedly. The disciples speak about it repeatedly. And there are a hundred million Christians in the world today that suffer intense persecution. A hundred million of them. Should we not even be thinking about them? Should we not be praying for them? We have a brother that is dear to us, Adam. We've don't never met him. Andrew has. Uh, on zoom he's spoken with him we don't know him well but we know what he's going through in the middle east we know many brethren like this are suffering in the world yesterday there was a seminar held here at church and the topic was the great imbalance what's the great imbalance is because millions and millions of christian rather of individuals have yet to hear the gospel while other christians such as us i've heard it numerous times, we have been intoxicated with the gospel, if you would speak. We're numb to it. It doesn't stir us as it should. It doesn't move our hearts. Whereas there are people who have never heard it once. And then there are others who suffer persecution for Christ's sake. Should we not be concerned for them? Should we not think about those who've never heard the gospel, not even once? Well, here we are hearing it over and over, and we look at the gospel as though it's something, okay, I get it, I understand it. How sad. Judgment will be great for the church in the West. We've been given much. There are churches that don't even have the entire New Testament, much less the books that we have access to, much less the teachers we have access to. Is that right? Is that right? Persecution will not come, but, oh, yes, it will. And we need to be ready. And that's why we read texts like this, so that it arms us. It arms us, our mind and our souls are prepared, so that when persecution comes, we will not fall apart. It's true that our parents left, at least mine did, and perhaps you have too, Your parents, or you yourselves, have left your country where there was uh, perhaps political unrest, um, financial duress. That's the reason why my parents left Calabria in Italy and came to this country because they didn't want to suffer anymore. They wanted a land of opportunity. And many of us have left, or our parents have left. And why? Because they didn't want to suffer. So my topic of the suffering really ruffles us. Beloved, it should. It should ruffle us. It should remind us that we should not take the blessings that God has given us for granted. One, that we should be thankful. And when God takes them away, our response will be, why? No. It should be, God has given, God has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That will be our response as God's children. If we respond any differently, it's because our trust is not in the Lord. Our trust is in mammon. Our trust is in comfort. Our trust is in science. Our trust is not in God. See, discomfort reveals who we really trust. And we need it. We need it. How many of us have ever suffered this way? In Hebrews 10.34, the writer speaking to the Christians Jewish Christians says this, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. In other words, those who were put in prison for the sake of Christ. You showed sympathy. You were there next to them. You provided food because in those days, those who were put in prison were forgotten. If the family did not take care of them, they would simply die of starvation in prison. It wasn't like today where they have everything in prison, right? They They even have rights, Prison, inmates have rights. Those days they had no rights, none whatsoever, right? These Christians would go out of their way to visit the prisoners and bring them what they needed so they can continue to survive in their cells. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Imagine that. Accept it joyfully. Imagine people coming to your house, taking your belongings, throwing them on the curb, right? And there you are. Please go right ahead. That's the kind of Christians we're talking about. It's remarkable, isn't it? And if we lose one thing, whether it be electricity... Or if water is cut off, we begin to complain. We have a lot to learn, beloved. We have a lot to learn. Did any of us envision at the start of 2020 that a virus would come and rock the world that we know and leave world leaders grasping at straws when it comes to the solutions? They don't have a solution. Yes, this vaccine works. No, it doesn't work. Wait, wait. wait, we need two vaccines. No, we need boosters now. Masks work, don't work. They don't know what to say anymore. Did any of us imagine that a small virus would leave us so confused? So let's not be quick to write off persecution. In verse 17, now, we're going to see after speaking to the suffering Christians, he introduces a topic from a different angle. The topic is always on suffering. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. I'll be looking at this verse primarily. What does this expression mean? What is Peter saying here? So I have to go back to a passage in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the book of Ezekiel, so I'll give you time to find that. Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet. He was both prophet and priest. No priest could be king. No king could be priest. A king could be a prophet, such as David. David was both prophet and king. In this case, a priest could be prophet. Isaiah was one. Ezekiel was another. John the Baptist was also a priest and prophet. But no priest could be king. And no king could be priest. Only in Jesus, these three offices meet and become one. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. So here's Ezekiel living in 6th century BC. And he is witnessing the siege of the city of Jerusalem. He knows that the Babylonians are about to come in, invade and slaughter. He knows that they're about to destroy the temple. But he's hoping, he is just hoping... That not many would die. Just hoping. He knows that the J- Jews were, were being wicked. Idol worshippers had turned their backs to God and had, were just going through the motion. He knows all this. And he's praying that God would have mercy. God has been having mercy. God has been, is slow to anger. But he is still holy. And what he sees in this vision petrifies him. He is terrified. Now I want us to read this vision with eyes of the Spirit. For the Bible says this, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May our ears be opened to what the Spirit says to us today. We don't want to be deaf. We don't want to read this like it's, though it's a novel. This is God's Word. Let's be attentive. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. And the glory of the God of Israel ascended from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. He called to the man clothed in linen at whose waist was the scribe's kit. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city. Through the midst of Jerusalem, and make a mark on the foreheads of the people who groan and sigh over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my presence, the other angels, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity, and do not spare. Utterly kill old men, young men, female virgins, little children, and women, but do not touch any person on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. Let's stop here. Let me just give you some history. For years, God had forewarned, years, years, had forewarned the people of Judah about the impending destruction, but they didn't believe it. They relied on the beauty and the presence of the temple in their midst, the priesthood, the altar. They were, doing, they were going through the function. God's not going to let anything happen to Jerusalem. We're safe here. God's people had turned a deaf ear to the warning Given by Isaiah, Jeremiah. And so they continued in their rebellion and wickedness. Now God was showing Ezekiel that the destruction of the temple was imminent. The destruction of the city of Jerusalem, their beloved jewel, was going to be happening at any moment. But before God releases the sword of Babylon, so the Babylonians had besieged the city, right? And they were unable to get in because it was fortified with uh, walls and gates and so forth. But they were going to penetrate. This is what God does in this vision. God tells one angel to go and mark all those who were sighing and groaning. In other words, people were praying for the city of Jerusalem. There weren't many. There weren't many. Very few. He's put a mark on them. You know how many were deported from Jerusalem to Judah, uh, to Babylon rather? You know how many? 4,000, a little over 4,000. That's it. Of the hundreds of thousands, of the millions in all of Judah, 4,000. That's it. Daniel, his three friends, Ezekiel. Very few. And so he says, mark them. And after you've marked them, he turns to the other angels. He goes, now go and slaughter everyone. Now he's seen this in a vision. And Ezekiel is tormented by this. He goes, Lord, please have mercy. Please, just a bit more. Wait, they'll repent. No, they won't. No, they won't. And so God was showing Ezekiel... The destruction prophesied by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Once the marking is done, God commands these angels to wreak out destruction. Now why did he say say then, start from the sanctuary? In other words, let the killing begin here. Because the priests were the ones most guilty. The priests, the ones who were supposed to be an example the ones who were supposed to teach God's people. The ones who knew the law. The ones who were acquainted with what the Torah said. The, different, the 613 mitzvot. They knew them by heart. They knew every commandment, statute, precept, word. They knew it. How sad to be so close to God's law and yet to have a total disregard for it. So the priests were living this way. They were doing lewd things. Read the book of Ezekiel, and you will see how lewd they were. There was debauchery among the priesthood. Ezekiel was one of them. Ezekiel feared God. Ezekiel was one of those that was marked He goes, oh God, please have mercy, he would say. Please have mercy. Just wait. But God had waited far too long. So God says to the angels of death, start with the sanctuary. Start with the priests. And the priests were the first to be killed. When Babylon invaded, killed the priests first. And then the Babylonians went through the city and slaughtered everyone else. And if you read the book, You read in the Psalms, rather, you will see that they took mothers who were pregnant and killed them and killed the infant. They opened their wombs and dashed the baby's head against rocks. That's how ruthless the Babylonians were under Nebuchadnezzar. You would say, how could God allow this? How does God allow such devastation? How does God allow such massacre? There are people who don't read the Old Testament because they don't want to read that part. They want to live in this fanciful world of, oh, there's always grace, always blessings, always good things. Of course God is a God of grace, but he's also a holy God. What are we going to do with that attribute? We're going to say, God, just put that attribute aside. Just be merciful. Just be gracious and nothing more. We don't have a Santa Claus on the throne. We don't. And so Peter adopts this expression, judgment will begin in the household of God from the book of Ezekiel. Saying, basically, God uses the same method today. Same method. God starts with the sanctuary. Judgment begins with the household of God, the sanctuary, the priests. So what does, or who does the household of God, represent who is the sanctuary. Well, Peter gives us his answer in chapter 2. We already dealt with verse 4. when It says, writing to these believers, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by people, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That God has made us who were in darkness under the wrath of God, his priests, his house, we have an altar, says the writer of Hebrews, that the Levites have no access to. We preach the cross, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that was rich towards us sinners. That's the amazing message of the gospel. But it doesn't mean that it stops there. Peter is calling believers living stones being built up to form the very house of God. So some of you are saying, okay, we're the house of God. Not the building, we know that. We are the house of God. We are the priesthood, the royal priesthood. We are the chosen race. We are God's holy nation. We get it. We went through that in second chapter of Peter, first Peter. So someone is asking, can it be that God begins judgment with us? And will that judgment look as horrific as it did in the days of Ezekiel? We are scared by the fact that God is a God of holiness. And that one day his wrath will be manifested in full. But where has his wrath been manifested in full? Where? Where has his wrath been manifested in full? Not on Judah. That was a small measure of God's wrath. What do you say, but wait a minute, children were killed. Women were killed. Virgins were killed. Old men were killed. That's a small measure of God's wrath? Yes, a small measure of God's wrath. So where has God's wrath been fully manifested? The Holocaust, someone will say. The Holocaust, that was an expression of God's wrath. No, 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 that wasn't. That tsunami that hit Asia and killed thousands in one shot. No, no, that's not a full expression of God's wrath. Where's a full expression of God's wrath? At the cross. At the cross. That's the only place we see a full expression of God's wrath. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. The sky becomes dark for three hours, from noon to 3 p.m. Dark. Up to that point, Jesus is speaking to the Father. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But then all of a sudden he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when God's wrath is unleashed in full on his very son. There and only there. Only he has the right to say, why have you forsaken me? Not you, not me, no one else. If we ever get anything that comes into our life, that, is, that hurts and is painful, we do not say, why have you forsaken me? God does not forsake his own. We don't. He forsook his son and only his son. God is holy but merciful with us. God is a God who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've Seen that many times. The God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New. God is unchanging in all his ways. His attributes are the same in the Old as he is in the New. So it's not that there is an upgraded God in the New that is a lot more kind. So we look at Jesus, look how kind he is. No, Jesus says, he who sees me sees the Father. It's the same thing. There is no difference between from one and the other. So the household of God represents today the church church. Of Jesus Christ, and if there's anything that's been exposed today more than anything else, it is the lewd practices of those who are pastors and priests, ministers. It is disgusting what is going on in the church, and God is just uncovering it all, uncovering and letting judgment fall on the house of God. So does God judge Christians? Absolutely, he does. Absolutely. You often hear this expression, don't judge lest you be judged. Christians recklessly throw this sentence around. The words of Jesus are misused and abused over and over. They're thrown around carelessly. And it is true that Jesus said those, these very words. He also said, judge righteous judgment. Now, if you look, for example, at righteous judgment, to understand what that means, we need to read a letter written by Paul, there he speaks about judgment that comes on the church of Corinth. And if you read, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 to verse 32, we read about judgment that came on this church. This is one instance. There are other cases of judgment also mentioned in the book of Paul to the Corinthians. We're going to look at this instance. Here we see that Uh, the Corinthian believers were behaving just like those who did not know Christ. In which way? Let's read the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, then we're going to see how judgment came in their midst, being the church of Christ in Corinth. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So he's, he's, he's already setting the context with regards to Holy Communion or Lord's Supper. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. By who? By the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. This passage is is first, very concerning, and secondly, comforting. Comforting. Concerning and comforting. Concerning why? Because Holy Communion is important, as we can see. And what's important is the way I treat my brother. Holy Communion is done in presence because it shows my brother that he is important to me, my sister, that she is dear to me. That's why we do Holy Communion in presence. And we are to discern the body. We are to discern each other. It doesn't mean just remember the cross, the message of the cross. It means I am supposed to treat you with honor. We are to esteem each other better than ourselves. What was happening in the church of Corinth, and you can read chapter 11 yourself, and you'll see this, were those, who, those that were wealthy, or had more, would bring their food to the Lord's Supper. Therefore, it was like a potluck type of thing. And those who had nothing brought little to nothing. And those who had a lot hung around with those who had also a lot, and those who had nothing hung around with those who had nothing. So they were despising the poor brethren. So that could be done in many ways. We could despise our brother and our sister by making her or he feel, uh, him feel that they are not part of the assembly. James speaks about the church receiving the wealthy and giving them places of honor and saying to the poor... Listen, you just stand here somewhere. We can do that not necessarily by having them stand, but by running to the person we feel more comfortable with and greeting them warmly and the others, you know, well, I don't know them. I don't wish to know them. I don't want to be involved in people's lives. I don't want to pour into people's lives. I don't want to be a pres- present in their suffering. Well, Jesus says, if you're not, you'll have no part of me. And so this is what was happening in the church of Corinth. There was... The vision in the church, there was disparity. Some were being well taken care of and others were being disregarded. Do you remember in Acts chapter 6 when the Grecian widows, they were Hebrews as well, they were Jews, but they were felt neglected. Immediately the church responded. Immediately the apostles said, it is not good for us to leave the word of God and serve tables. Then therefore they appointed seven men who made sure that the Grecian widows were not neglected. We need to look at who's neglected in the church and take care of them. Otherwise, our holy communion is a sham. We need to see who is forgotten, who is not thought of, who do not do we not call, who? Who? If we love each other the way the Lord wants us to love each other, we have nothing to worry about, nothing at all. But if we don't, then we should be concerned. That's what it means to judge ourselves, to examine ourselves, rather. Examine, am I loving the church? Am I loving my brother? Or do I stay from certain people? Do I stay away from them? Do I disregard them? I don't care about them. Examine yourself. That's what Paul is saying. For the one who eats and drinks, he eats, drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body, meaning the church. So, So, Paul reproves them harshly and says, if we judged ourselves, God would not come with his rod of correction. So, here they are, they're saved by grace, they're elect. They've been chosen before eternity, before time began. They're loved by God. They're His, but they're behaving like the world. So God comes with correction. So if we judged ourselves rightly, verse 31, we would not be judged. But what kind of judgment is Paul speaking about? The Lord doesn't take the church and then casts it away. He doesn't let wrath come upon the church wrath came on his son not on the church how wonderful the holy spirit was grieved by the behavior of the Corinthian believers by their disobedience by their disregard for those who had less for those who were not in the in crowd for those who were in the peripherals for those who were marginalized they were, the Holy Spirit was grieved and therefore now comes in with discipline. Verse 32 But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, we're saved by grace. Yes, the wrath of God is no longer our portion. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 1. It's clear. We're saved. We're his. But that does not mean we walk carelessly. So Peter is saying, there's judgment as well. Not only is there persecution that is coming your way, not only are are you being mistreated, and therefore you are rejoicing in your mistreatment, but there's also a cleansing that is happening. That's what Peter is speaking about. Going back to the Church of Corinth, for this reason, many among you are weak, and sick, and a number are asleep. That means they're dead. Dead. Some believers were spiritually weak. And we're going to elaborate on this next week. I just realize it's close to uh, the end. Others were suffering illnesses. And still others were experiencing an untimely death. And we're going to be looking at how the church of Corinth received this judgment from God. Why? so that it would correct it, so that it would come back to being the church that the Lord had called the church to be. That's why in Proverbs chapter 3, we read, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his rebuke. We live in a world where people don't want to be corrected. Christians, I'm talking about non-Christians. Christians. you have no idea how many times I've attempted to correct one brother And I've used all the grace, all the tact, all the diplomacy, and I timed it, and I made sure that the person was not, you know, inconvenienced, and I made it very, very tactful, and the brother says, picks up and says, I'm not interested, and he walks away. Thin-skinned Christians we have. Thin-skinned Christians, fickle. How could that be? The psalmist says, let the righteous strike me. David says, let him strike me. And he meant it. When Nathan struck, uh, rebuked, he struck the king. You are the man. You sinned. You took somebody's wife. He struck him. And David repented and says, I've sinned. We need Christians that will say that. And not, oh, please don't say anything to me. Please You can preach, but stop there. Please don't come and tell me that I need to adjust my life, that I need to change something, that I need to repent. Please don't say that, please. Thin-skinned Christians, a whole bunch of children running around. We need to be mature men. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his rebuke for whom the Lord loves he disciplines. If he doesn't discipline us, it means he doesn't love us. And a Christian who doesn't accept discipline, it means I don't want to be loved by God. I want to stay in my infant state mindset. I want to be a child. I want to be here, cuddle me, cuddle me. I want to be in a fetal position for the rest of my life. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, just as a father disciplines a son in whom he delights. So next week, we'll take it from here. Continue reading the passage. May the Lord give you other insight. And feel free to email me and share share with me whatever you glean from scriptures as well. Let's stand and let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to embrace correction, to realize that when you do correct us, it's not for, because you are a capricious God like the mythological gods of Zeus and Aphrodite and so forth. They were capricious and they took it upon humans. That's not you, Lord. You are a merciful God. You are a compassionate God. A long-suffering God. A God who did the unthinkable by giving up his son. But a God who also wants us to share in his holiness. He is, Lord, you chose us to be conformed to the image of your son. Not so we can be a whole bunch of babies running around. Not wanting correction. Remaining childish. Childish. Deliver us from that mindset. Deliver us from thinking this way. Help us to be like the psalmist who said, let the righteous strike me. It will be like ointment on my head. Help us to embrace correction. For you are our heavenly father. Help us to understand that judgment begins with the household of God. So that we know that when it comes our way, whether it be individually or collectively, You do not mean to hurt us, for you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, much less in inflicting pain on those that belong to you. Help us to remember, though, that you do it so that we can come closer to you. Think of the words of the psalmist who said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep his law. Lord, help us to see that. When you discipline us, when you correct us, it is so that we can keep your law, that we can love you more, love each other more, esteem each other, go out of our way for for each other, not neglect each other, and obey you and serve you with all of our hearts. We thank you and we praise you for your word and for the way it speaks to each one of us so clearly and so majestically. Thank you. In the precious and holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.